This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. You're listening to The Feast, where history is served with a dash of hot sauce or a squeeze of lemon, where we look behind those dates and names everyone knows to the meals that made them. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. And each week, we're bringing you stories of how revolutions can start at lunch counters or how empires can end over dessert. Some of the biggest moments in history happened over dinner, and we're giving you a seat at the table. This is a podcast where meals make history. If you were to think of a U.S. president most associated with food. Who would you think of? There's George Washington, of course, forever associated with apples, but increasingly with his chef, Hercules, whose excellent food became a benchmark for presidential dining. Thomas Jefferson probably has to be up there, too. Like many of the founding fathers, Jefferson was a huge fan of wine. While spending time in France in the 1780s, Jefferson developed a massive interest in the stuff. And when he returned to the U.S., he reportedly spent $7,500, or what would roughly be today $120,000, on wine during his first term in office alone. And then, of course, there was the cheese. Now, if you haven't heard our episode on Jefferson and the Monmouth Cheese of Cheshire, well, I won't spoil the ending for you, but let's just say the man liked his cheese. Of course, there are more modern anecdotes. Ronald Reagan and his jelly beans, FDR apparently had a thing for grilled cheeses, and so on. But one president you probably don't immediately associate with food is Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States. Now, fans of the TV show The West Wing will probably know that Jackson was the other president associated with the mammoth cheddar cheese, one he famously distributed to lobbyists and special interest groups from the East Room in the White House. But what else made Jackson, if we can use the term, a foodie president? Unlike Washington or Jefferson, he wasn't known for having a skilled chef in the White House kitchen. But look closely enough, and you'll find bits of food history all over Jackson's two terms in office, which lasted from 1829 to 1837. After all, it was Jackson who gave us the term of a kitchen cabinet to refer to a president's unofficial but trusted advisors. And food always seems to be in the background of big moments of Jackson's presidency. For example, the resignation of his vice president, John C. Calhoun, came after, what else? A dinner party in 1830. At the time, Jackson was known as the People's President elected on a wave of popular support against the incumbent, John Quincy Adams. Although in reality, Jackson was a very wealthy landowner from Tennessee, his public image was carefully crafted. 
giving him the appearance of having the common touch. According to urban legend, this even applied down to his table manners. Jackson apparently always had two forks by his dinner plate, one steel and one silver, always choosing to use the more democratic steel. Food and drink pop up again and again in Jackson's presidency. But today, we're heading back to the very beginning, to Jackson's inauguration day in March of 1829 when a White House reception turned into a no-holds-barred party with half the population of Washington, D.C. All because of the punch. It had been a long day for Andrew Jackson. Really, a series of long days. In fact, it had been the longest few months Andrew Jackson could remember. He was tired, feeling every one of his almost 62 years. But that long day, March 4th of 1829, Inauguration Day, was only the first of many such days to come. There were four years of long days in front of him. Eight, if Jackson played his cards right. But that was all in the future. Now all President Jackson really needed was a nice, quiet steak dinner. If crowds alone were anything to go by, Jackson's inauguration had been a resounding success. Newspapers would later report that over 4,000 people had descended on Washington to watch the inauguration. A serious figure, given the population of the U.S. Capitol at the time was only around 16 to 17,000. The hard-fought victory against President John Quincy Adams had earned Jackson the title of the People's President. Before Jackson, presidents, including Adams, had been largely New Englanders, or at the very least, heavily invested in upper-class East Coast society. Jackson was an oddball, spending most of his life in the wild frontier lands of Tennessee, But it was the War of 1812 where Jackson first captured the attention of the American public. When British troops threatened New Orleans in 1815, Jackson had leapt to the city's defense. Against a superior force of 7,500 British soldiers, Jackson and his 5,000 men had saved the city. Or, that's at least how the papers saw it. He was hailed as a hero no matter that a peace treaty ending the war had already been signed a few weeks before. Jackson was now a certifiable war hero, forever to be called Old Hickory, a reference to his undefeatable toughness. And as America was to learn, that toughness cut both ways. Jackson was not one who liked being told what to do. On the battlefield or off, Jackson liked getting his way, And when he set his eyes on the presidency just under a decade after the Battle of New Orleans, well, Washington was in for a bumpy ride. Jackson had first run for the presidency back in 1824 against John Quincy Adams. His defeat was bitter, blamed on backdoor politicking and betrayal. And Jackson set his resolve to run again when Adams came up for re-election in 1828. Another hard-fought election followed, with mudslinging on both sides. 
Adams supporters pulled no punches, publishing sordid tales about Jackson and his wife Rachel in newspapers all over America. Now Rachel Jackson, who was a matronly woman of 61 in 1828, was humiliated by the accusations hurled at her. Enduring the bitter campaign, Rachel's heart finally gave out only days after she and Jackson learned of his victory. What should have been the celebration of a lifetime was turned into a funeral procession, with Jackson heartbroken over the loss of his wife. But for those who had supported Jackson, it was time to bust out the champagne. After the election results were announced, every hotel, inn, and open floor in Washington was snatched up by those eager to see Old Hickory say the oath of office on March 4th, the date set for inaugurations since George Washington. Jackson arrived in the city in February, traveling reluctantly from his home in Tennessee. He took up rooms at the recently opened National Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. The 200-room hotel was the gem of the city, perfectly situated between the White House and the Capitol building, an ideal location for any aspiring politician. Inauguration Day was still a new tradition in the young United States, and the even younger city of Washington, D.C. As I said, only some 16,000 residents lived in the city at the time. This might help put it into perspective. Pennsylvania Avenue, the road on which the White House sat, had yet to even be paved. As for Inauguration Day, well, there had been only six presidents before Jackson, and only a handful of those had taken the oath of office in Washington. Now, if you can forget about the minor little thing of managing to win a U.S. election, becoming an American president is actually a pretty simple affair. A short 35-word statement swearing to uphold the Constitution of the United States. That's it. But even in 1829, everyone knew there was more to it than that. There were parades, cannon fire, speeches, bands, as much pageantry as a new president could stomach. And every year, the festivities just got bigger. But for those in the upper echelons of Washington society... March 4th was about one thing. An evening of dinner and dancing at the extravagant inauguration ball. It had started back in 1809 with James Madison. His wife, Dolly Madison, perhaps the biggest social butterfly to ever hit the White House, was not someone to pass up an opportunity to throw a party, particularly for her husband's inauguration as president. But not for Andrew Jackson. The six months of deep mourning custom dictated following the death of his wife meant that there would be no dancing the night away that evening. Not that Jackson minded much. He was a general, after all. Not a socialite. Although some Washington circles decided to hold a ball anyway that evening, they would have to content themselves without an appearance by the new president. If the upper classes wanted to get a word in with Jackson, they would have to attend the midday White House reception, a tradition that even Jackson's deep mourning couldn't stop. After all, he was the people's president. 
Jackson wouldn't disappoint the thousands of well-wishers who had turned out on a chilly March day to watch him ride down Pennsylvania Avenue, who had craned their ears to hear him recite the short oath of office, and had waited in ever-longer lines outside the gates of the president's house just to shake his hand. So it was just around midday, after the official ceremonies were concluded, when Andrew Jackson got onto a white horse, no one said he wasn't heavy-handed with the symbolism, to make his way over to the White House. Now, if previous inaugural receptions were anything to go by, it promised to be a calm, formal affair. The chance for politicians and Washington elite to meet privately with Jackson, accompanied by light music, perhaps, along with light cakes, ice cream, and fine wine for the ladies. Now, the question remains who was responsible for organizing and paying for this little get-together. After all, up until the night before, the incumbent, John Quincy Adams, was still president, and by all official reports, still occupying the White House. Leaving only a little before midnight to a private house just outside Washington, there hadn't been enough time for an official changeover in staff. After all, Jackson and his supporters wouldn't have exactly been welcome at the White House while Adams was still there. This had been a vicious election. Adams was bitter over his failure to win a second term in office, and Jackson blamed Adams for the smear campaign against his wife. The campaign that he insisted had eventually killed her. So Jackson had avoided visiting the White House since arriving in Washington in February. So who had been responsible for setting up the lovely cakes, ice creams, and drinks for the post-inauguration reception? You see, at the time, presidents paid for all their own entertaining— no small feat when whining and dining international heads of state, not to mention local political elite. And by 1829, the president's household had already achieved something of a reputation for fine food. Hercules, George Washington's chef, or James Hemings, who had created lavish banquets for Thomas Jefferson and his guests, had already become the stuff of legend in Washington. The social whirlwind of Dolly Madison a decade before had made the White House a spot for some of the best parties, complete with the best food, in town. So there were tons of rumors about presidents paying exorbitant fees for the White House's upkeep out of their own pockets. Not that most presidents couldn't afford it. Although Andrew Jackson may have come from what the Washington elite considered the backwaters of Tennessee, he was no stranger to fine dining. While at the National Hotel, Jackson had regularly entertained friends in his private rooms. Meals that included the much-sought-after terrapin soup or roast canvasback duck. During his presidency, reports suggest he spent his entire presidential salary, which has been calculated to have been about $650,000 in today's currency, plus $6,000 of his cotton crop just to pay for his dinners. But don't worry too much about Jackson's expenses. It's estimated at the time his net worth was somewhere in the neighborhood of $119 million. Now, the inaugural reception may have been the first event of Jackson's presidency he was expected to cater for. And only a bare staff of paid servants remained at the White House following Adams' departure. Jackson was actually still waiting for most of his own servants to arrive from Tennessee. In contrast to Adams, Jackson relied largely on slave labor in his household and had made it clear that the paid staff who had worked under Adams' presidency would no longer be needed. 
Only two White House staff members are known to have remained at the White House during the transition. Adams' former valet, Antoine Michel Giusta, and his wife, Louisa Adams' former maid. Now, why these two remained in their posts during Jackson's presidency, as all reports suggest they were quite devoted to the Adams, is unknown. But stay they did, and both were to have a pivotal role in the inaugural reception. Now, what happened next at the White House on March 4, 1829, has often gone down as one of the rowdiest parties 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue has ever seen. Jackson arrived... Tonight on NBC... Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story... Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Left at the White House to greet the usual guests. Politicians, the wealthy, the connected. But as more and more people streamed through the doors of the White House, it soon became evident that this was no invitation-only affair. All those thousands of people who had turned up to watch Old Hickory become the seventh president of the United States had followed him to the White House. So what had started as a small, intimate gathering grew and grew and grew. Soon, Washington elite were overwhelmed by the waves of well-wishers crowding through the rooms, helping themselves to the free drinks, hoping to get a chance to shake the hand of the new president. Later descriptions of the reception resemble something along the lines of Animal House. Justice of the Supreme Court Joseph Story famously said, The reign of King Mob seemed triumphant that day. Others chimed in to describe the damage done to the White House. Another guest, James Hamilton Jr., eventual governor of South Carolina, wrote that, The mob broke in, in thousands. Spirits black, yellow, and gray poured in, in one uninterrupted stream of mud and filth. Among the throngs, many subjects for the penitentiary. Eventually, something had to be done. With the White House stuffed to the brim, Antoine Giusta took matters into his own hands, opening barrels of orange punch out onto the White House lawns, hoping to coax some of the rabble outside with more promises of free drinks. The Washington socialite and author, Margaret Bayard Smith, wrote later that the damage done to the White House must have run into the thousands, describing scenes of China breaking underfoot, rugs ruined by spilled punch and lemonade, where even Jackson himself had to escape out a side window in order to avoid the crushing mob of people. But was this reception really such a bacchanalia? How did so many people, sometimes estimated to have been over 10,000, get into the White House that day? And how did they, after all those years of invitation-only formal receptions, even know to show up? 
Recently, two American historians, David and Jean Heidler, have argued against this depiction of Jackson's inauguration reception, pointing out that most accounts of the reception in newspapers at the time didn't refer to anything like the damage described by Story or Smith. The Niles Weekly Register, for example, simply observed that Jackson had, quote, received the salutations of a vast number of persons who came to congratulate him. No trampled China there. For me, a few clues are in the orange punch that the White House stewards opened up on the lawn for the party guests. Now, punch is a funny thing. First of all, it's the very definition of a great party drink. No one drinks a punch bowl alone, or at least you shouldn't. Bring out the punch bowl, and you're more or less committing yourself to having people over. Now, it's only been a recent trend that punch has been popping up again on drinks menus in the U.S. and Europe. Thankfully, save from its ignoble status as the drink of proms and bad parties alike, punch is actually one of the oldest drinks around, predating those well-wrought martinis or old fashions by at least a few hundred years. Yes, long before the Manhattan, the Sazerac, even the old-fashioned itself, punch was the mixed drink to rule them all. And David Wondrich, famed mixologist and expert on the history of drinks, has written an entire history of these lovely concoctions, called appropriately enough, Punch, the Delights and Dangers of the Flowing Bowl. Now, people have been adding things to liquor since its very invention. Sure, liquor is potent enough to get you sauced in a hurry, but who wants to drink straight fire water? Mold wine, for example, is one holdover from medieval mixology, if you like. Warming and adding various spices as well as fruit juice to add to a wine's flavor. But the origin of the term punch, to refer to a mixed alcoholic drink, comes much later, only around the 1600s. Now, this was a time when England and a few other European countries were setting up trading companies in areas such as India and the Philippines. And by 1632, the Indian coastline was dotted with English trading posts, all sending back rich spices, fruits, and sugars to chilly England. And it was around that year that the term punch, to refer to a drink, first entered the written record, referred to in a letter from one British soldier to another, wishing him well on an upcoming trip, that he would find friends among the voyage with whom he could, quote, drink punch with by no allowance. But where exactly the term came from remained a mystery. In English dictionaries at the time, it was defined usually, and rather vaguely, as a, quote, kind of Indian drink. Many believe that the term derived from the Hindi word for five, spelled P-A-N-C-H, standing for the five ingredients usually found in the beverage, water, liquor, sugar, spices, and fruit juice. And Indian origins did have a certain plausibility. After all, four out of those five ingredients usually came from the East, certainly the spices, sugar, and fruit juice. Even the common liquors found in punches of the day were often those popular in India, Sri Lanka, Java, or the Philippines. Palm wine or a rock, a catch-all name for liquor made from coconuts, rice, or sugarcane, were all common boozy bases to punches at the time. Now, there are other theories. Punch, after all, was an English word already. And other folks have pointed to the punch-in, a type of barrel that spirits were often chipped in, as the term that gave the drink its name. 
Now, the theory's often been discredited, based on the belief that no one would want to drink that much punch at a time. You see, punchians traditionally held between 60 to 90 U.S. gallons. That's quite a bit of punch, even for sailors. But then again, it was barrels of punch that were being opened for the White House guests in 1829, not bowls. So maybe there's some truth to the link after all. And there's also the question of why the White House had prepared barrels of punch for the reception at all. Not to say that Americans didn't love their punch. The popularity of the drink in England easily made its way to the colonies in the 1700s. Punch, and most often rum punch, was a perennial favorite in taverns throughout New England. When George Washington stood for election to the Virginia House of Burgesses in the late 1750s, he spent nearly 36 pounds on liquors for his campaign rallies, half of it on punch alone. Needless to say, he won. But like anything else, trends come and go, even in drinking. By the end of the Revolutionary War, England was already treating punch as a kind of quaint old-fashioned tipple. In 1810, the author of the East India Guide said that punch was, quote, now completely obsolete unless among seafaring persons, who rarely fail to experience its deleterious effects. But punch remained popular in the U.S. for far longer, but certainly not exclusively as an upper-class drink. So if Jackson had been expecting only a small gathering of intimate, well-connected friends— How do you explain the barrels of punch the White House staff had at the ready that afternoon? After all, what would be better than the so-called People's President opening the White House inaugural reception to the people themselves? Although the accounts by the Washington elite would have readers think that the White House barely survived the assault, with people running madcap, stealing or breaking furniture in China, but if you look at the newspapers, they don't reflect the scene at all simply that it had been a popular reception, with many folks stopping by to wish Jackson well. So if Jackson had intended this to be such a close-knit elite circle, how can we explain the barrels of punch? You don't exactly break open a barrel if you're not expecting a crowd. And on March 4th, with John Quincy Adams having left barely 12 hours before, the White House would have been fairly empty. Jackson had yet to install any of his own furniture or decorate the place to his taste. If there was ever a time for an open-door policy, it was now. What better way to demonstrate his common touch than by welcoming in the thousands of people who had come from all corners of the U.S. to see his inauguration? But even Jackson may not have anticipated just how many people, some estimates put the number over 10,000, would take up the offer to see the White House and the President firsthand. But one question does remain. What kind of punch was served during this famous reception? And during the 17 and 1800s, there must have been thousands of recipes for punch. Some people even made their own punch recipes famous. For example, Daniel Webster, who actually attended this famous reception, and who would become Secretary of State under not one, but two presidents, was so famous for his love of punch that his own recipe survives. A staggering blend of rum, cognac, sherry, red wine, champagne, fruit juice, and black tea. Whew. We'll put a link to it up on the website if you want to try this at home, but be careful. 
Apparently, being Secretary of State requires a strong drink or two. Getting to the specific recipe served that day can be a bit tricky. Few sources don't indicate much beyond that an orange punch, said to be flavored with whiskey, was served. And as we know, oranges, as well as lemons and any other citrus fruit, were common ingredients in punch. But specific recipes for an orange punch can be found in a few mid-19th century bartending guides. One, famously by Jerry Thomas, dating to 1862, specifies that orange punch should have around three to four oranges, three-fourths pounds of sugar, water, port, rum, and brandy. Now, if you're planning for a crowd, a combination of port, rum, and brandy is really going to set you back in terms of money. And compare this recipe with a simpler whiskey punch that involves the very basic ingredients of water, whiskey, sugar, and oranges, or lemons. I'm guessing the latter rather than the former recipe may have been served to those White House guests, especially if it was being made by the barrelful. But we'll put up several recipes for orange punch on the website so you can decide for yourself, especially if you'd like to ring in or drown your sorrows this inauguration season with some punch of your own. Whether or not Jackson orchestrated the whole event, he did manage to escape the crowds early. By some accounts, crawling through a side window in the White House and back to his rooms at the National Hotel. While the inauguration reception had not gone according to plan, at least according to the Washington elite, they did, of course, have that evening's formal balls to look forward to. Those at least were ticketed affairs, so no riffraff getting in that evening. But Jackson wouldn't be attending any of them, as he was still in deep mourning for his wife. No, after returning to his rooms, he would take in a quiet dinner enjoying a prized steak sent directly to him from the markets of Manhattan by an admiring fan. For him, it was a chance to get to know his new vice president, John C. Calhoun, a bit better. After all, in a strange twist of the American political system at the time, Calhoun had actually been vice president as well under his predecessor, Adams. It was a strange situation, especially given how bitter the election had been. And hopefully, a steak dinner would do nicely to smooth any ruffled feathers between the two. Now, if you know your American history, you'll know that any steak would have to be more than worth its weight in gold to reconcile these two. Calhoun would resign the vice presidency in protest less than two years later. But for now, I like to imagine them sitting down to this meal in 1829, optimistically setting out their plans for the next four years. So let's leave them there having a quiet dinner, before the nullification crisis, the petticoat affair, or any of the other political crises that would make these two mortal enemies. Those are stories for another podcast. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port, who is firmly in favor of sampling some of these punch recipes in a future episode. You know, for in-depth historical research. But more on that later. A huge thank you to our new supporters on Patreon. We couldn't do this show without you. So thank you. And if you're interested in becoming a supporting member, please visit our webpage at www.thefeastpodcast.org donate. And if you can, 
Please help other folks find The Feast by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of other podcasts, Emily Prokop from The Story Behind has a quick message for all you in search of other great humanities podcasts. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in other podcasts that focus on the humanities. In fact, if you search Twitter for the hashtag Humanities Podcasts, you'll find plenty of shows on history, language, literature, philosophy, art, and more. These are podcasts by people who enjoy telling stories, exploring the arts in our world, and who want to share their knowledge. Some examples of podcasts you'll find are Go Dig a Hole, an archaeology podcast, the Trojan War podcast, which retells the classic myth, and As We Like It, where three friends talk about film adaptions of Shakespeare. Search the hashtag Humanities Podcast today or follow Humanities Podcasters on Twitter. And if you're a Humanities Podcaster, use the hashtag in your tweets so others can find you. Music featured this week included Jazar, the Heftone Banjo Orchestra, and the fabulously named Basuniana. Find more information about them and all the music we featured at www.thefeastpodcast.org. We'll also throw up some great books and articles on Andrew Jackson, just in case you haven't got enough of old hickory yet. And if you end up trying any of these old punch recipes, we'd love to hear about them. Drop us a line at our website or email us directly at thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more great stories of meals that made history. Until then, stay tuned and stay feasting. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.